Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill, and I'm Dylan Johnson. No, you had to do the box. <laughs> it. it was going to be I'm the Great Ganja. And I'm Sam Elliott. Today we're going to talk <laughs> about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this Rune to No Coven weekend. That's right, and we're also going to be discussing the Legend of Korra. Stay with us as we do the thing. That was my Shiro Shinobi impression, but then I wanted to say the Varric line at the end. Because he was the announcer, the broadcaster dude that did yeah, the... Yeah. Well, no, Varric wasn't. Shiro Shinobi da, 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 was yeah. the broadcaster. And then Varric cool. just said, do the thing line, which is cool. cool. All right, we're jumping into the news. Uh, hey, Disney Plus Day happened. We got glimpses at Moon Knight and She-Hulk and stuff like that. Nothing major. It was kind of a dud. They also released information about the new predator movie prey Pray. which is coming out next year but it's going to be on hulu it seems like not in theaters they, they better pray that prey is going to do good on hulu <laughs> i'm sure it will i'm sure they are praying and i'm sure it will do fine i guess i mean yeah it's not a stroke of confidence that they're going to put it on a streaming service right away but yeah we'll see how that turns out seems like an interesting little idea prequel movie uh but the big piece of news is the spider-man trailer spider-man indeed spider-man so what did you think of this new trailer which i'm sure you devoured as the rest of us yeah i actually missed it no okay <laughs> uh it was okay yeah um i'm here for it looks like fun yeah just looks definitely... like he's he's going around collecting them all like pokemon it's true that could be fun though yeah Grabbing them up, sending them back to whence they came. Uh, I suppose. They didn't have any explicit acknowledgement of Toby or Andrew in it. But apparently, and I can't tell if it was real or not, but people were saying that the Brazil cut of the trailer had Lizard getting punched in the face. Hmm. I Which, saw... I have <laughs> like, seen Punched that, in the face yeah. by nobody, but by, by it being invisible. So <clears> they're saying, yo, they just edited out toby or andrew garfield well it already jump at the three villains yeah it already looks like they're missing the villain they're the, yeah. the spider-man like it just because lizard is just not even aiming for top holland like, exactly he's just going gonna miss him completely so that's probably what it is and we'll see that in the actual movie but i think the punching thing i think that's fake it looks it looked pretty fucking fake <laughs> it, did, it looked really like, bad he I mean, like he like careened his neck it was like one of those <laughs> The terrible a, CGI things you see massive, people do, where it just is disgust, intentionally it disgusting, like, like ball. Those Shrek is love, Shrek is life stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but where someone, just one guy dicking around on a computer. There was one video that where it had like the official Sony. I guess someone could have made it up. I don't know, but like uh, the Sony Brazil, whatever, and that account posted it. But I don't know. That's interesting. But it does seem like based on that, and the fact that they are bringing all those villains back. And the leaks that we have seen, you know, the whole, the picture of Andrew with his hand on the pole 
looks exactly like the scaffolding that they got going on at the Statue of Liberty place where that whole It's actually it is actually a an up and coming installment of a Captain America tribute. Because the see, the yeah. big thing that crashes down is his shield. Yeah, I saw that in one of the big establishing shots, them having that shield, which is pretty cool. Thank God for establishing shots. Right. You love them. All right, let's jump into the box office breakdown for the weekend of November 12th to November 14th. In Eternals. first, <laughs> you bastard. Yeah, okay. In first was Eternals with $27.5 million. That is a 62% drop, which is decent for any movie, even especially the Marvel movie. That brings this total to 118 million domestic and 281 million worldwide. Indeed, and coming up right behind it, the big red dog Clifford was 16.4 million across a three-day and over 20 million in the five-day total. Rough, so rough. Clifford, yeah, Clifford came out swinging, came out roughing. So there you go. In third place, rough, rough. Dune with 5.5 million, a 29% drop. That is great. It is at 93 million domestic, so it will hit 100 million stateside. You'll love to see that. And it's currently at 350 worldwide. We'll see if it'll be able to inch its way to 400 million. I don't know if it will be able to cross it, but a solid performance from Dune, whereas way earlier on, we were very concerned about how it would do, but it did well. Yeah, good for you, Dune. We'll see you with part two. You talk about no time to die, Arafis. <laughs> out, of, out of anger <laughs> no time spite. to die got 4.6 million despite the fact that it just opened on uh the premium video on demand after only 31 days <clears throat> but yet it was still hanging on a beautiful 23 percent drop from the last week it has now crossed 150 million domestic and it has also crossed 700 million worldwide it is going to pass f9 within the next week or two dylan how are you how are you able to live with yourself now? I think you're a slut. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a dick, an asshole. I'm goddamn, I'm pissed. I'm, I'm mad I'm losing this belt. It's all crumbling for you. And yeah, it's even worse go news, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, also doing well. 4 million, a 10% drop. That is so sexy. Sexy. You love to see it. 200 million domestic. It has now joined Shang-Chi as the only uh, film that has crossed 200 million so far this year. Uh, in terms of domestically and in worldwide, it is 440 million, which I will remind you yet again is surpassing Shang Chi's worldwide total. You love to see it. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> uh huh. Anyway, after Venom of the Picard was Ron's Gone Wrong, the animated movie that I still know nothing about. It made 2.2 million, which is uh, okay. I guess still there. French Dispatch had 1.8 million. Still kicking ass. Belfast also had 1.8 million. Fucking getting its ass kicked. <laughs> Spencer, another sort of prestige Oscar film coming out, 1.5 million. And Antlers, 1.2 million. All right. And now for our predictions for the weekend of November 19th to the 21st, you have your final film of your roster, Ghostbusters Afterlife, coming out. It's got a lot of ground to make up. Yeah, I think it's going to make $2 billion this <laughs> week. Well, what's even the fucking point of guessing anymore? Who cares? You want it. You want it. Nah, but you got to play the game, Dylan. You uh, go, play. go fuck yourself. Fuck play the game. game. What do you think of the game? It's opening weekend. 
I don't know, 40 million at the best. 40 million at best. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, this one's tough to gauge because it's the whole nostalgia thing. It's a new one. It's got Paul Rudd, Sexiest Man of the Year. But then also Tell 2016 it, Ghostbusters may have left a bad taste in people's mouth. People didn't really go out to see it. Um, and this one is definitely getting overshadowed by Spider-Man. So Sony's like trying to pump it out there with the advertising, but it is definitely not the biggest thing on people's radar. So yeah, I just don't know how to gauge it. I will uh, give it the benefit of the doubt. I say it will hit 40 million. Um, and we'll see if it gets across 50 million. I think it'll get close to 50 mm-hmm. million. I think Eternals in its third week now this weekend can do 15 million. I think it can make 15. 15 million. Interesting. 15 million. Hmm. I will maybe say uh, that it will make <laughs> adjust. <laughs> maybe 10. Maybe, maybe 8. Maybe 6. 5. No, I'm going to say 15. Uh, yeah. I'm going to say. Maybe 13. I'm going to say 12.6 million. Going specific. We're going to hit a bullseye on this one. Okay. Sure. (laughs) And next we have King Richard, the Will Smith movie about Serena and Venus Williams. Um, So it's also coming out on HBO Max. It's more of a prestige Oscar type film, not a big blockbuster, but it does have that big name attached to it. Bill Smith. Yes. What do you think it will get? I'm going to go, I'm going to do your bullseye thing again. I'm going to say <laughs> 4.7 million. Four. And Four. I don't think it's going to make a lot. I'm going to go 8.9 million. We'll see. <laughs> we will. Our very, very specific predictions. Yep. And now it is time for our main topic. We are talking about the sequel to Avatar The Last Airbender, which we did the whole huge saga to, which is crazy. But we did that whole thing. Now we are talking about the sequel to that show, The Legend of Korra. Indeed. And now and now we will start with season one, which is titled Air. That is the subtitle for the season, which is cool because in Avatar we got the other three elements and now we have our air season to kick off Legend of Korra. What were your initial reactions? You watched this for the first time this past few months. I watched it for the first time, I think a year ago. Initial reactions to mm-hmm. Korra and the world that they built. In this first so, episode, I absolutely loved the idea that season one was focused around, like having this new sort of steampunk atmosphere where it's concentrated in a particular city and you get to see all the developments that have happened post industrialization in the Avatar world. That I think is super cool. And I do love the direction they took with Korra's character, making her be such an opposite to. Aang, she's 100% all in and being the Avatar. She loves doing it. She loves being that. She wants to go out there and do these Avatar things. And she's been sheltered thus far and hasn't been able really to do that stuff, hasn't been able to test herself in that way. So she's itching to get out there. So I love that they do that. Um, and it can kind of be grading, definitely in season two. Um, but her sort of very headstrong ways of going about things and always being like sort of aggressive and very impulsive going straight into things. Um, but I love that that is such a departure from Aang. Um, and I also love that we start out with her already having mastery with most of the other elements and then Air is the one that she needs to 
come to learn because yeah in the previous season we started out with air so this time it makes sense that we have an avatar that is struggling to learn that that element in particular so yeah a lot of the basic building blocks that they have here and the overall premise of the season we'll get into the villain a little bit later but Mm -hmm. i just love all of that and so the fact that they were able to and this is going to be a recurring theme i think as well like the ideas they have to explore for each season is so so interesting Mm -hmm. but the execution falls short for most of these seasons which is very unfortunate but how about you what were your first impressions when you watched this with season one so the first time I watched the show, I watched it when it was coming out and I watched the first episode and I was like, this is cool. I'm here for it. It's more Avatar world. This is going to be great. And I didn't watch another episode. <laughs> Cut to uh, what is it? Five, is it? Like eight years later, maybe eight or nine years later last year. Um, I'm finally sitting down. I'm like, I'm going to muscle through it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch it. It's going to be great. And it was. And I liked it. The first season specifically, uh, I think, is very special. I like it a lot. I think it's it's definitely up. It's my we'll get to our favorite seasons and whatnot, but it was my second favorite season. I love what they're doing with like the idea of the people who are not air like any kind of bender, like getting that kind of disparity between them. How they're they are so up underrepresented in the Avatar show. Like you have Sokka, but. And you have one episode, Saga's episode, where he deals with not being a bender. But they're a very underrepresented group of people. And I feel like it's interesting to see that there's tension rising when you create such a like mega city that is full of every type of bender possible. I also like the world building with that city. I like everything that has to do with that. The crime, the the conjoining of the different bendings to work together in different... like Because in Avatar, you see... You'll, you'll spend whole seasons with different benders and you'll see groups of people bending the same thing. And then in, in Korra, it's a lot of mixing these bending together. I like that a lot. I like the idea that they present with Mako and Bolin, how their parents were different benders, so they're siblings, but they bend different elements. I think that's super cool. Like that's an interesting, it's just a, a trait that is given out genetically, so I think that's a cool thing to bring up. Uh, uh, overall, I think there are some... I don't know. It, it it's just not like a like the greatest thing. They certainly like fall short on a lot of things, but I had a good time with season one. I like seeing a lot of the characters come back again, mm. like uh, uh, Katara. I like seeing Katara. I think that's great. And the flashbacks with uh, Amon and uh, what's his name's father, learning all that stuff. Yakone or something. Yeah, whatever his fucking name is. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah um those things going into it i was like "Mm, am i gonna really like seeing the adult versions of them but for the most part yeah i did i did like seeing them come back um, and they were pretty sparing with them like they didn't overdo it so i appreciated that one big thing that i did love about this season which is no surprise the pro bending aspect the combat sport element i mean that that was so cool i mean it's literally just them wrestling with their bending powers so that was super cool um to see that and i do remember when it was airing i think the only episode i saw was probably three or four one of the ones where they were doing that bending thing the tournament Mm -hmm. Um, and i was like "Uh, yo that's super cool but i also Mm -hmm. was not 
watching the whole show because I think I was like, oh, that's some midway through the season. I'm not going to get, in, get into it now. And then just never got back around to it. Weak. Um, and then I was always hesitant because then I heard things about the series and how it wasn't as good as the original. So I was always a little hesitant to dive into it. But I'm glad we finally did that I did and we're talking about it. Um, Yours. Tenzin and the last Airbender family. I also love the way that they did that. Yeah. Where, I mean, these are the last, um, these are now the last Airbenders and uh, getting to see him trying to balance the responsibilities of being on the council. And he's also trying to train Korra in the final element that she needs to learn in order to be a fully fledged Air, uh, avatar and trying to keep everything good at home, trying to instill elements of the culture of the air nomads into his children um, and also keep them safe as the city progressively uh, descends into chaos. Mm. That was super great. Um, I love Tenzin. He's a great character for me. Tenzin Uh, is a fantastic character. I like the whole family. I like all the children. I like all Tenzin's siblings. I love his wife. I love the whole dynamic that they have going there i think it's fantastic it's a good like like a rock for cora to fall back on at any point where she in the series when she's like feeling down like they are the her family at this point mm-hmm. I think sure. it's great. and to contrast that in avatar the last airbender that rock for ang was his team team the avatar. gang yeah the gang in this version we have the team avatar you already mentioned, Mako Bolin, and Asami becomes that fourth member. Mm-hmm. So, how do you feel about this pairing? Because, like, I do like them and how each of them do. I mean, they have their distinct abilities and their distinct personalities, but they never really felt to me like a full-on team, and certainly not like a full-on family, as we got with the uh, gang in avatar last airbender so for you at least in the first season did it click for you having this new team avatar were you constantly like trying to compare them to the old gang we had and seeing that it wasn't as tightly knit of a crew i think the problems arise with the gang in team like the actual team avatar they are they were like they had actual family relationships with each other. They had like actual kind of how families would interact and whatnot. So it felt more like a family. I think another issue arises with how old, much older the uh, Cora Avatar family is. She's they're all just like pretty much eighteen year olds, and so they just get a lot hornier. And so it's just all <laughs> about like yeah, it's just all about crushing on each other. It just gets crazy. But I will say. Bolin sticks the landing. One of the best characters in the show is Bolin. He's absolutely phenomenal. I agree. Bolin was definitely the one that I latched onto in the what first is the, season of the Team what, Avatar people. Yeah, what is the the role he plays? Is Tuck Tuck? Nuck Tuck. Yeah, Nuck-tuck, in season two. Yeah. yeah, we'll get to that. I love um, that. But Yes, he was great. He was definitely the one that felt the most like, okay, we're just going to take Sokka and make him an airbender. Um, an earthbender? Him... Oh, Thank yeah, very much. Um, and so, uh, but that's forgivable because he was very entertaining and very interesting. And we will talk about this as it goes forward, but he also had no character. Man had nothing to do, but he was 
still, still the best part. Yeah, <laughs> which is funny. Um, Asami, we'll get to this as well, was a recurring thing. They just did nothing with her. Yeah, she's I like part of Team well. Avatar in half the episode. She's just not in it. She just always gets pushed to the side. She really only has stuff in the fourth season, kind of. Yeah, but, and in and, this and one, a little bit with her, one, father, her father, but it's always yeah. usually in relation to the father. Um, mm-hmm. And so I did think it was interesting how her father was a traitor um, or just a part of the equalist and betrayed uh, Tia Avatar. Sounds a shock to her, and she had to deal with that. But that connects to this other issue, which is Aman and the equalist. Again, I think that is such a good idea. Having it's great, yeah. As you brought up, this rift between the benders and non-benders, which hasn't mm-hmm. been explored yet, but it's certainly a thing that should be tapped into if they're going to expand this world. <clears throat> and the way that it's being done, having Amon using this power we've only seen Aang use, the power mm-hmm. to strip someone of their bending, like that is such a, a scary thing for benders. Yeah. And then think about Korra, someone who her whole identity is being the Avatar, is having those different bending abilities and this villain is trying to destroy all benders and she is like the symbol of that and so of course she's number one on his list and so that is a great was number one exactly so that was uh (laughs) was that interjection really worth it (laughs) are you proud of it i love spongebob dude i will always interject with spongebob (laughs) Is that one <laughs> we're gonna do episode by episode on SpongeBob? Dude, I honestly you would could. probably for do the first <laughs> for the first three seasons in the movie. I honestly could. Yeah, there's enough to talk about. There really, but is. It, they would only be like half hour episodes. But I really could do it. Actually, that's so why it's like forgivable. It's manageable. Anyway, we're gonna do not, a SpongeBob episode one day. We will, but right Until now, next year, talking about Cora. Fuck Cora, uh, bro. Let's talk about SpongeBob no. right now. <laughs> Um, so crusty cray, yeah, yeah, it came back in a good way, it did. Um, okay, so <laughs> I don't even know where is that. My whole train, I love you trying to keep track, derailed. and I'm just, <laughs> it's just gone. <laughs> what was I saying? Gora, the, the equalists, oh, yeah, so her whole identity is around the bending abilities and whatnot. So she's number one mm-hmm. on the list, she was number one. Okay, there we go, brought it back. We have yes. come full circle. Um, so that's a brilliant setup for like this villain. But I think they botched it towards the end by one, making him just like the whole bloodbending thing was super cool. Like with Tarlock having that come around was very yeah. interesting. But having him like Amon also be that bloodbender and he's using the bloodbending in order to take away the bending by clogging up their chi and whatever. That I was iffy on. And I really dislike the fact that they just made his sole motivation be the fact that his dad was abusive towards him and his brother. And so his his solution for his father, who had been stripped of bending, is now a non-bender, being a total dick to him and his brother, is somehow to take away bending from everybody else. Like you literally saw the example of how taking bending away from somebody can sour them to the point where they would do horrible things to their own flesh and blood. And now you're going to go do that to the entire world. That just makes no sense to me. And the worst part of that is it also means that they didn't really address the philosophical or ideological uh, themes that were getting brought up with Amon. Like we didn't go far enough, I think, in actually 
seeing the point of view of the non-vendors or of the equalists. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't even really, like, towards the end of it, when Tarlock was doing his whole police state thing, we saw, we actually got to see that oppression that was going on. But yeah. they referenced it earlier, mentioned the council as an example of it, but we didn't get to see enough of the true, um, like, oppression that the non-vendors were facing in that city. So mm -hmm. I wish they would have dug deeper into that. I wish they would have had a character. And it was, like, right there. And they partially did it with Lynn Bayfong getting her, her, her bending taken yeah. away. They should have had somebody's bending get taken away earlier on. And then they have to grapple with, oh, no, now I'm not a bender. Now I'm able to see what these non-benders are feeling when, oh, now I don't feel capable in a fight. Or now I'm more afraid when, you know, these benders or the triad or whatever come through the triple threat triad um that would have been a great way to explore this but they had none of the good characters or any character coded as good mm. sympathize with the equalists at all or even mm. consider their points of view and then at the end of it everyone like they took over the city and everyone once they find out amon wasn't actually a non-bender they said okay never mind screw him he was a fraud and they just gave up their whole like revolution and movement and point of view, mm -hmm. they definitely should have come down harder on having Korra having to ideologically combat what the equalists were going for instead of just roughhousing them, pushing them out into the water, which he arises from in a water tornado, and then his makeup comes off and everyone sees that he's a, a waterbender. I don't know, that just seems like a very flat way to bring that story to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. I think what was always great about Avatar is that they were really trying to hammer at fascism and talk about fascism in a very realistic way. And I feel like they're trying to do something different with the different seasons where they talk about something different each time. And this one was like the civil discourse between like different groups. And I think that's super important to talk about, but that could be like three seasons of development in and of itself. Like fascism was, and they really squeezed it down to one season, so they had to cut out a lot, which is because uh, on top of that, they're trying to do character development. It's just too much for like one season television to just be about civil discourse when the next ones are about other stuff. It, it gets a little rough. Right. This is definitely the one season that needed more mm. than Cause season the episode three, count. Because season three, they, they like had practice at this point. Season three, they get it right, and we'll talk about it. But in this one, it definitely was like, just trying to test the water, see if they could tackle such a heavy subject in one season as opposed to three, and they didn't stick the landing. It was more like like training wheels, like just learning how they could do it in one season. Right. All right, to start our wrap-up, any other issues or grievances with season one? Um, I like that Zuko's grandson is General Iroh. Yeah, that was so cool. I think that was cool. And voiced by Dante Bosco. Yeah, that was, that was very a nice cool. surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, I really love all of Tenzin's children. I think they're all great. I think they'll have great development over the show, especially by season four. Because uh, what's his name? The son? Milo. Milo, yeah. <laughs> Mr. He, Party Mickey. Milo is very much just like the, the gross comedy relief in like the first few seasons, especially this one. And by season four, he's just a fully fleshed character, and I love it. I love that they do that. But um, I love the whole family. I love all that stuff. 
yeah, it's a cool. decent season for me. Like I'm, I'm satisfied by it. Nice. Yeah. For me, some of the other issues and grievances that came up were they got beat so often. Like I picked up on that so much like Cora and even Tenzin, the rest of them just get beaten down so often in the first part like in episode four or five or so, it was somewhere around there where she gets captured by Amon and then he just lets her go mm-hmm. which i don't exactly know why that was I don't what he chose part. to do if later on he he ends up taking her bending away anyway it just yeah it's been like a couple months as well so i'm the finer points of it are lost to me but that didn't make sense like he, she was captured and then he lets her go they get beat by the mechas at one point like they all just get knocked out by it um <clears throat> the they lose with the which was a really great episode when the tournament happens and then you see all the people in the crowd put the mask up and then they bring out the electrical gloves and start like taking down the vendors around the arena that was super cool but then again mm-hmm. they also got beat that one not allowed because that was incredible and it was like an ambush. But they also said Lynn, they were aware that this could happen, that they might ambush them at this point in time. Lynn prepared for it and then it still just happened. Um, mm-hmm. Then later on, Kor gets kidnapped by Tarlock and it's, I don't know, it was just a lot of them getting captured and getting beaten. And I was like, why does that keep happening? Also, I thought it was dumb that there were no lasting consequences of the bending getting taken away i thought lynn should have just not gotten it back i'm okay with yeah, giving back cora her her bending that's fine because it's like okay they had the spiritual thing <clears throat> but yeah lynn getting Everybody's back just getting felt too powers easy. back yeah yeah it felt yeah. too easy and then i also thought the whole air bending like her getting that despite the fact that she didn't really make any progress spiritually like that was the whole mm-hmm. thing of oh this is why you don't have mastery over airbending and then she uh-huh. gets it in a fight that just kind of i don't know was also a dud but i agree for the most part definitely a solid season um and compared to season two definitely rose in my estimation season two spirits what did you think about this one dylan this is my least favorite one it had a lot of promise but it was just boring it was just (laughs) not i don't know this is the one where it feels like they have so much promise and just fall so short as opposed to the other one where it's like they they meet some of the requirements you'd expect for what they're trying to do this one just doesn't hit any of them because they're setting up the civil war between the north and south tribes they're setting up the spiritual conflict that uh core has to deal with even though spirituality is the one thing that she has the most trouble with so there's so much character tension that's going on there they set up so much lore with the first Avatar, which I think are great episodes. I think that's all great. And it's just, I don't know. It just falls so flat. It's just so boring. Like, I just don't care. The stakes just aren't there for me. <laughs> which is funny because it's the biggest stakes ever because it's the literal manifestation World, of evil yeah. taking on um, the manifestation of good, which is Rava, the Avatar spirit thing. Yeah. It just um, didn't feel like it was there, you know? It, it, I didn't feel those stakes, really. Right. Maybe Which, it was because it was season two, and I was like, "I was like, I know I'm watching it. We're gonna watch two more seasons, and you're not really building up to be the like the intense final thing." Because like Avatar, everything's building up to the fight with the Fire Lord, and this mm-hmm. one is like each season's a new thing, and I'm like, 
Mexicans is going to be something else. This isn't you're you're saying that this is the ultimate battle between good and evil, as opposed to the Fire Lord. And I'm just, it's just season two of a four season show, and I'm like, you can't just. Maybe they should have pushed Spirits to be the last season. Maybe that would have been better. Maybe they would have had more practice at writing these characters, <laughs> had more character development to play with. Then it could have been Korra's last push to get in touch with her spirituality so that she could be a better avatar. Maybe that would have been better because then, then you could end on the big good versus evil battle. But I don't know. I feel like, yeah, that probably would have been a lot better than making it season two. Right, for sure. Because it does feel like rushed. Because she's also so mm-hmm. new in her avatar journey that having, again, like the biggest conflict that there could possibly be, like the yeah. spirits of good and evil battling it out and it comes so early on it, it just yeah felt out of place um, and i agree with you that the whole civil war storyline was interesting like it had so much promise to it and again i like the direction of them trying to resolve these questions of what is the avatar's place in this modern world it's not as clear and black and white as ang's battle where he's fighting this terrible <clears throat> horrible tyrant um and needs to do it in a ticking clock before Sozin's comic comes. Like that was very clear. We knew what he had to do. It was obvious. With Korra having these more complex geopolitical conflicts, it opens up a lot of room for them to really dig into okay, what is right, what should be her place. Um, and they seemed to start doing that with the Civil War storyline, but then towards the end when it's a battle between good and evil. Like they just took away that complexity and that nuance and made it okay. You are now fighting literal evil. It just, I don't know. It made it so oversimplified um, and completely did away with the civil war storyline. Like that, that just got entirely dropped because Unalak's motivations wasn't about that. It was becoming the dark avatar or whatever. So that was very frustrating in terms of the characters core this season was very aggravating and i guess part of that was intentional to like show her still needing this growth but she was just so mean to Mm -hmm. tenzin her mentor to her father to mako like it was just rough to watch like i just did not enjoy watching her at all this season also the love triangle thing comes back which i don't know why they decided to rehash that um because those are Definitely one of the weakest parts of this show. So that was very strange. I do like, though, that they dug into Tenzin's relationships with his siblings. And we get to see, um, like, that one episode definitely stuck out to me as probably one of the best of season two of when it's them, um, like, Tenzin's kids, his little trio, are having issues. And is was Janora who ran off, I believe. Um and so they're like out trying to find trying to find her and it's mm-hmm. Tenzin with Kaya and with Bumi and they're also going over the issues that they have with each other and they're talking about the shortcomings of Aang as a parent to the two of them whereas Tenzin was sort of favored because he was that airbender and so all the hopes of the future of the culture that Aang was trying to protect and continue um, were on him so he devoted all his energies into Tenzin that I thought was really interesting to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also get, we get Nugtuck, we get the movers, mm-hmm. which is interesting, which comes from Varric. 
he was also a big highlight of the season. He was great. Yeah. I think I agree with you on a lot of stuff. Uh, I do wish. And I just wish they built up the final battle more. I just wish it was. I wish they had. Okay, here's how I would have done it. Here's how I would have set this up. I would have had a lot more foresight because I know how they did the show in the end. So I, I of course, understand what's happening. I would have taken the season, put it at the end, and I would have built up to it in between all the other seasons while all the other stuff is happening. Kind of like Avatar did. That's going to raise the stakes. It's going to make a multi-season conflict, which the show never has, which is is a fault of it. I and... disagree. I kind of like that they took a more contained season-by-season approach to it since it does, again, distinguish it from Avatar Last Airbender. They already did that and did it so impeccably well that I wouldn't want to see mm-hmm. them try to do the same thing. And they do, with three and four, they do make it much more of a connected thing. Like, season yeah, four but strictly th- happens because of the what occurs in th- season three. But my problem is that where... Avatar Last Airbender is done impeccably well because they're building up to one big finale. Having four little finales is not done impeccably well every time. And so it's falling short for me, which is the problem. And I feel like you can have, you know, four complete ending or three complete endings to three seasons and then a fourth season whose ending you're building up to the whole time as opposed to Avatar that's just like one full story start to finish as a like i feel like you could do that in a way where you have different conflicts overall seasonal conflicts with a, an overall show conflict in the background and that's then in the fourth that, season it takes over the main conflict that's also though a byproduct of what was going on behind the scenes with the production and with nickelodeon do you know about that yeah, whole thing? yeah. season one was initially was supposed to be just the miniseries they didn't know if there'd be more then they got season two but then they still didn't know if there'd be more. And then they finally got the word for season three and four that, okay, you'd be able to finish these off, um, which is why they mm-hmm. are much more connected. And you see season three's finale isn't like a bow on the rest of it. Like season one and two was very clear mm-hmm. um, that you could like just watch that season and be okay. That was like a full story. But season three definitely leads into the next with its finale. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that again is uh, forgivable, and uh, because it makes it unique and distinct from what we've already seen from this world, I do kind of like the season by season approach they took. Yeah, perhaps I like the idea of it. I just don't think it was done well, and so I feel like they should have done something different. True. Okay, so that's, with just, the... that's just my hindsight perspective. Right. But I will the... say the the thing that I liked the most about the season was, well. One of the things I liked most about the season was Avatar 1. I like learning more about that. Uh, I like learning all about how the Avatar was created. I like learning about the spirits. Like I think it's a good way to set up what will become the finale of the season. I think it's interesting. I think it's new. I think it's fresh. I think it's vivid. I think it's exciting. I had a good time all with the those adjectives. two episodes. Yeah, I really um, did like it a lot. Yeah, it's interesting... You say that because I love the animation style of it. And I also think Harmonic Convergence is a great name. <laughs> I think they stole, that name. they stole it. I feel like I've heard Harmonic Convergence from 
a lot of different things. I'm pretty sure it's a musical term, first off. And I'm also pretty sure it's been used in all kinds of other sci-fi stuff. Harmonic conversions, I'm pretty sure. It's a great name. It is a great name. So whoever came up with that for music (laughs) and then it got stolen for sci-fi stuff. Great job. Um, But the those episodes I was iffy on and the more like I think about the more I just don't like it. I feel like it kind of breaks much of the lore of Avatar and it certainly breaks all the mystery behind it, um, which is unfortunate. And I think the idea of so they're all living on humans are just living on the backs of lion turtles. Lion turtles give the bending to the people so they can go out into the woods and whatnot where spirits are Mm -hmm. and not die. And then one day humans just decide not to give back the bending. And that's how we have benders. I don't really like that. Originally they were saying that it was the, we learned from the original benders, right? If it's earthbending, the badger moles, the sky bison for the airbenders, so on and so forth. Um, That worked because there's definitely a mysterious element to them. Like, oh, well, how did they actually learn that stuff from those animals and whatnot? But you can see this idea of, okay, an intense spiritual connection between those humans and those animals, those pieces of nature. Um, And then they got this magical ability. Having it be... A lion turtle gives it, and then the humans just one day don't give it back. It seems a really weird way to to kickstart the whole idea of them being benders now. Well, um, I like it because, I don't know, I feel like it does give realism to the idea of, like, some people have bending abilities, some people don't have bending abilities. In term, it has to do with, like, genetic crossing between who got that initially and who didn't. And I like the idea of... Uh, like, what, the way I think about it is they're given the power by the lion turtles, and then they learn how to use these abilities, like, truly, because you you see them using it, and they're just sort of, like, shooting fireballs, like, basic stuff, but they truly learn to use it and master by watching how the masters work, and that's why uh, so much of earthbending is based on how the badger moles work, how they move, and the waterbending is based on the pull and push of the tides from the moon. And airbending is about how the freedom and flow of like the sky bison and firebending is about the rigid dance of the dragons. Like they're they're learning the moves based on the old masters, but the power itself is not just manifesting out of nowhere. It's coming from the lion turtles, who are the the they are the bender the bending benders. That's why they were able to teach Aang how to bend is because they know how to bend bending in in people because they're so connected spiritually to the humans and so of course of all the creatures that in this universe that would give out bending it would be the lion turtle so i think it makes sense to me well that makes sense obviously i don't know what other being would be the one that would bestow the bending but again i just disliked the way that they got those powers um again just sort of being given it and then choosing not to give it back at one point i also don't know how much i like juan just being some random dude that goes around and gets just visits all the different lion turtles and gets the different hey man if we can watch tom holland spider-man go and collect villains we can watch an avatar go and collect bending styles uh not sure how much they compare but uh, okay but what i'm saying is spider-man gotta catch them all is 
in this universe, one and only. Whereas anyone in theory could have just gone to the other Iron Turtles and said, "Hey, give me some of that good bending power." Um, which is yeah, weird. but they and wouldn't then, have been able to hold it because they don't have Rava. Rava is able that's to hold also all like four why because there is no inherent idea of Rava needing to be with a human. Like they say that, like, oh, they'll be able to combat Vatu with this or whatever. But again, that's just he like a made her up, avatar uh, rule. Like they could have just had it's any... the name of the show. Okay, I know that. I'm just saying. He's her avatar. Had... There's no like legitimate reason why a human is able to hold one power that they're given by land control, but they can't have two or three or four without some other. Because it's spirit. too much. What if they get manifested by some other spirit? Why does it have to be the uh, blah, 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 Rava avatar spirit? I don't know. Because just, Rava is the most powerful spirit. But she can't even take down Vatu without. I mean, the whole idea human. was that Vatu, like, who was the villain of this season? What was his name? Unalak. Yeah, Unalak wanted to release Vatu so Vatu could go inside of him and he could become the evil avatar. Like, that was the whole yes. idea of the show. I know. Because the, the, Vatu and Rava are the only things in the world that can hold all four bending powers at once. They're the yes, only thing said, powerful enough and spiritual enough. Again, they're saying that. But then also, Juan goes through no like spiritual journey in order to get. Yes, any he does. What? He's just given it. It's not what spiritual stuff did he do? He literally at the end of it with closed the, the spirit portals, which is what they say at the end is like, oh, that was a bad choice because it broke the connection between the humans and the spirits. And then, well, the also, whole idea is that they couldn't he, live together at the time when he got and into that, the avatar state. That also wasn't because he did anything spiritual or whatever. He just touched the portal and said, now I am Super Saiyan. Yes. Again, which I'm like, this is just dumb. It's like a children's idea of, oh, this would be cool because this does this. And it's not like motivated by anything in the story or anything in the character. He literally literally interacts with the spirits. And because the whole idea is that humans are afraid of the spirits. And he like goes and interacts with them and realizes that they're like things that you can be in touch with and connect with and be friends with. And he tries to protect them from the humans, and then they just become the humans and the spirits themselves become evil, and then he has to fight them and stop them. But he doesn't want to fight them because he loves both of them at the same time. And so he creates the portals that that stops their emergence between each other because he's just a normal guy and he can't handle it. But it's the avatar's job to be the bridge between those two worlds. That is the whole point of his journey. To be the bridge between the two worlds by breaking the bridge? That makes no sense. And also makes no he is sense the bridge. why because he he's a normal guy and he can't solve the problems. Okay. And then the whole the whole about? rest the whole rest of the show is Cora opens it up and she has to be strong enough to balance the two worlds because we'll we'll see in season three that there are issues with opening the portals. There is, but also nothing gets done in order to to make humans and spirits able to live with each other. If they couldn't live with each other in the beginning, where humans are literally living on the backs of lion turtles as they get attacked when they go into the forest by the spirits and the spirits hate the humans we see that with that one random creature that was trying to keep Juan out of the oasis thing nothing got changed there nothing was repaired between spirits and humans in their relationship so why would you open up the, the whole show is about repairing those relationships like the, the whole same job of the happen. avatar but they didn't do the whole any of that job, work but the whole they, job of the avatar is to is to be able to balance the spirit world and, and then the also world. why like they broke the purpose the actual reason why the avatar came about was to just beat vatu and then once that was done why did 
they again they broke the spirit portal so they're like okay we're not actually having humans and uh spirits interact anymore but now he's just in the human world and is trying to solve human problems and then is also now getting recycled like there is no actual purpose for why the avatar exists then. he separated the spirits and the humans for the most part and then is but now just I, dealing yeah, with yeah for the most conflicts. part no, no no it's for the most part there's there's leakage there's there's drainage I can't believe they did that two weeks in a row. There's, there's <laughs> some drainage, sure, but again, they're and it's his job to take care of it. That's what Aang is doing for a lot of the episodes. But that's he's, not his he's... job. That's not his main job. Like that is not what he was there for. If the whole point of him was to be repairing what's going on, why would he close them off entirely? And then when there are those brief instances of drainage, he goes in and. Does what says? Hey, I'm sorry. Stop being what did mad. you say? To your spirit. World I don't think portal. you said drainage properly. <laughs> Can, I'm, I'm sorry. Can you it. say I it again? I, I didn't. I'm sorry. I'm not going to hear what you said. You're simply not going to get out of me. Here's, you have to repeat. <laughs> here's the other thing, though, with the finale, which again, I think it's like it makes no sense why Cora all of a sudden decides. You know what? After one was wrong about the spirits having to be in their own spirit world. Yeah, no, I'm I going don't think to merge the two, which also, again, it just was not like, well, how did she come to the conclusion that after a whole I don't have an season of spirits fighting her that she thinks, yes, it is now time to merge the two of us together again without consulting an literally another human being, anyone who might possibly be affected by spirits clashing with their world now. That was just insane. Also, I mean, she is an arrogant person. That is part of her character. Like, I mean, that's not, true. That's not, that's not something that Aang would do. Aang is more of a think on it, and we watch him think on it kind of character. And Korra is kind of like, I'm going to do it and deal with the consequences yeah, kind of character. And which I is what we see throughout the whole show. But they code it as, like, they have Tenzin afterwards. Say, oh, hello. They have Tenzin afterwards say, uh, I think you should do whatever you think is right. And it's like, no. <laughs> what do you mean? She could be wrong. And that could be a bad thing that, get, that she just did. Because we saw 10,000 years ago... When Avatar 1 made a decision, it was the opposite decision. We're now believing that that was the wrong choice. So you're saying that they are, they can be wrong. But also, the Avatar is now literally merged with the spirit of goodness and peace and order and whatnot, which is giving a sense of like infallibility to them. Like They're partially human, so there is still room for flaws and whatnot. But technically, I mean, they're saying, no, this person is meant to overcome like evil chaos order, whatever. And whatever they think that means is what it is. Because they missed the massive opportunity to have an avatar, the thing, be trying to balance spirit world, human world, be the bridge, doesn't merge also with Vatu. Like, we beat Vatu instead of Vatu and Rava merging within the avatar. That would have been interesting. That would have been a cool direction to go in. Perhaps. But they didn't do that. And they said, pure evil. We will now fight by having Korra become a massive kaiju monster. Also, I haven't seen it in a while, but didn't she lose? rava at that point she just goes i have no answer meditates becomes big and blue and then yes, is able to be right. the dark unalog vatu person like that makes no sense so that could anyone sounds just right to me and i the... i ha i have no answer i <laughs> think you... that whole part is written very poorly yeah i agree with you in that yes anyone could just i think the avatar one stuff is cool but yes i agree that the whole yeah, finale no. to the season was very poorly written and built up to uh, other things that also made me upset about that finale. These people really, you know, the Aang energy bending lion turtle thing in the finale. We can let that slide. But Janora 
all of a sudden becoming like this complete spiritual monk or whatever and being able to project herself across the no universe and across the spirit plane it comes out of nowhere just absolutely out of nowhere and they do it multiple times and she comes in and saves it and i'm like what she saves the day out of no nowhere the powers came from where how did she learn to use them blah 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 that made no sense it also made no sense that tenzin goes into the spirit portal with <clears throat> thor and all them and then goes to look for janor instead of helping Korra to fight the manifestation of pure evil in all the universe, like you realize that if Korra loses, Janora and you and everyone else are never going to like make it out, right? That was just I mean, so it's strange not, that he would choose It's not to... an unrealistic decision. I mean, parents often choose their children in these kinds of stories. Like that's not like a crazy thing to do. I think in this instance, it very much is because there's multiple times in other situations where he allows his children to do dangerous things like later in that season when she says i gotta go do this and he says oh stay safe and she goes and teleports right in front of unavatu as they're blasting out their chests across republic city i don't know that was just very it was like kind of unbelievable to see all this stuff going down um in the show that was in some part created by and written by the people that did Avatar The Last Airbender. But anyway, Avatar. to wrap up, any other highlights, grievances, favorite characters at this point in the show? It's not great, you know. Not a great season. I just feel like the first two seasons are a little hard to get through because it's just not as captivating as the first two seasons of Avatar, and it doesn't really build up too much. Like, you, you don't see what's going to happen in season three. You're not like excited for season three because you just don't know what it is. But I just feel like it's just hard to go from season one to a, which is just okay to a season two, which is just bad. Yes. But then it's easy to go to a season three, which is great. Because season three of Avatar or of Legend of Korra is fantastic. Season three is change. Uh, This is my favorite season. It's so good. Everything they're doing is great. The idea of trying to create a, a villain that is a, a being of anarchy and having him be a, an airbender is great. Having the return of the airbenders as a consequence of Korra's actions in the second season is a great addition. I just think, ah, oh, it's awesome. It's a great season. I absolutely love it. It gets so dark. It has a lot of really cool consequences that affect season four. Uh, I just think... Everything's done so well in the season. Everything Zaheer is just the best villain in Legend of Korra, hands down. Uh, the fights are super cool. The stakes are there. In the way that season two didn't have the stakes, the stakes are here for this one. And the consequences aren't even as bad as what the consequences would have been in season two if the bad guys had won. But the stakes are still there because you don't know what's going to happen. Anyone can die at this point, bro. Shit's just going off the rails in this season. It's awesome. The whole fight between Zaheer and his gang and then also... The airbenders and tens and siblings. I mean, talk about tens, dude. Like, I really thought tens was just gonna die right there, dude. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you skip right to the big money, money part, but yeah, that was some of the best, the best, I think, episodes of the entire series because you really did think anything could go down right now. And I wish, like, again, it's still somewhat of a kid's show, but as we saw when the Earth Queen got the breath taken out of her oh god she gets choked up like that was amazing and they held on it for so long like they actually showed her eyes bulging out of her head 
That was crazy. And so we knew, all right, they are not shying away from showing people getting Finally. killed. Anymore. Finally. I mean, in season one, they're... they did that, which was also pretty brutal, like the murder-suicide bit, which was done really cool. I love the way to put the glove on and then put it over the casting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in this one, I mean, yeah, again, we see a murder straight up take place, and we know that could happen. And uh, I wish, it's still a good show, but I wish they would have pulled the trigger and killed at least, like, Boomy or Kaya. Um, that would have been That would have been dark. insane. And it would have felt, because the sense of dread that you get when they're calling Tenzin, and then you hear him over the radio go, oh, no. And then you see the massive ship outside, and he's like, they're here. Like, that is so good. And then, I mean, as you said, that entire fight was brilliant. And this, it had been missing for the previous two seasons. Because season one, a lot of it was like the probe ending, and they went with a different style. And there wasn't a massive clash between Korra and Amon at the end. And mm-hmm. then we had kaiju fights at the end of season two. But in season three, the bending and like really incorporating the martial arts and when I into it again was so good. It hit so good. And Zaheer versus Tenzin specifically, our first like airbender master on airbender master fight. Oh, it was amazing. It was everything I was hoping it would be. That part was absolutely beautiful. Indeed. Just absolutely incredible. I love everything they do with Zaheer. I think he's just such a fantastically written villain for just a one season villain. I think he's just just absolutely incredible because he's just so relatable in a lot of things he's saying. He's very understandable. He's not just like a psychopath doing crazy things like Ozai, which is also a cool thing to do anyway. But he's just very much like a, a I'm a logical villain and I have things that I need to do to promote my cause, which is anarchy. And a lot of the things he's doing, like they're horrible and evil things, but the purpose is there and real. Like killing the Earth Queen because the Earth Kingdom is corrupt. Like it is a step too far, but... Like, it makes sense. Like, yes, I understand why right. you want to upset this this corruption in the Earth Kingdom. Like, mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah, he's a principled man. I mean, mm-hmm. his MO, his whole thing that he wants to do, the anarchy stuff, so stupid. Dumbest, like, ideology you could possibly have. But he <laughs> stakes to it, and he follows through. He truly believes in it, and he's going to do whatever he can. So he... We saw earlier in the season he was planning on taking out Raiko. Wasn't able to because he was trying to pursue the Avatar. He wants to take out Earth Queen. And also he wants to end the Avatar cycle and level the playing field essentially and get rid of um, this Avatar, this force for what can be corruption and status quo and keeping the people like the Earth Queen and whatnot in place because the Avatar is not willing to do what needs to be done in those circumstances. So having... A villain that truly, I mean, we see what his goals are and he's fully capable of carrying them out. Great stuff. Also, again, the setup for it was brilliant over the first couple episodes and seeing him gather his team again. And, oh, they are just incredible. You get the lava bending, water tentacle arms, combustion woman. I mean, all that stuff is just so cool. By far, I mean, Team Avatar needs to step up their game because they were the coolest crew of the series uh so that was awesome the cool and then, kids club yeah we had talked about it on a previous episode as well but with episode two when you see zuko come back and it's because he's getting told zahir's out and they're coming for the rest of his crew and mm-hmm. you see the dread on zuko's face 
because he knows how awful exactly and you see that you're like oh my god zuko is terrified about these villains he's personally going out on his dragon to go stop them you knew things were up and then seeing him and the desna eska i don't know what they're called those <laughs> the twins the waterbending twins oh, i love them on rock yeah they were pretty funny um the four of them having to go and meet them up in i was like the north pole i think and fighting um zahir and his crew that was just so good and again the bending on that i was truly enraptured by the action again uh in the series in a way that I hadn't been previously mm-hmm. so that stuff was great we talked to, about the Earth Queen getting offed, but our initial introduction to her, that was great. Like, there's something about Avatar when Bossing Say is around that it just gets elite. It just hits a whole nother level. And when we mm-hmm. return to Bossing Say, we get that part, which is interesting. Her fighting the like Mad Max people and them saying, You're on the wrong side of this war. And then we find out, Oh, yeah, she is corrupt because she's capturing these airbenders and trying to cultivate her own little army. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great. The way they connected that with Kai, having that new character come in. Um, and he's the one that gets taken was great. Having Mako and Bolin finally having some actual development, meeting their family. Um, that was great stuff as well. Um, and then, yeah, we got a big focus on new types of bendings that didn't break the world. I still think, like they didn't really explain how lava bending happens or why Bolin is able to all of a sudden do that new form of bending. I mean, to be fair, they don't explain how metal bending works. They just, they're just like, Toph can do it. Toph invented it. Well, they showed the whole seismic sense and she's able to identify the little bits of the earth and the metal that haven't been fully purified, refined yet. So they did, like, that makes sense. But in this show, they rewrite that and they're like, some people can do it, some people can't. Well, I think it would make sense because I, again, I was iffy on the fact like, wow, all these people can just metal bend. I wish it would have kept it more of uh, like sort of an elite skill among earthbenders and not something an entire city and society is able to base itself off of. Mm, But it is pretty elite. It's like, what, 10% of earthbenders can metal bend? I think something like that. It's a very low percentage. Where'd you get that number from? I don't know. It was a very low percentage. <laughs> I would pull it number out of my is, ass, but... but I'm pretty sure it was close around there. Gotcha. But anyway, I do like that they had, again, an actual arc for Berlin where he's struggling with metal bending. He feels inadequate about it. And then he's able to unleash this new power, which he actually you know, had a reason for suddenly being able to do that. But still, I liked the gist of it. Um, so yeah, all that stuff was fantastic other elements to bring up about this season i mean i just have compliments for this season i love the whole it's good i love the fact that zaheer is just so obsessed with airbender ideology before he even gets airbending mm. powers like yeah, it's that not was very he, smart it's not something he discovers after it's just like he's just so in touch with it that maybe that's why he got it too is that he it like completes him as a person it's what he was missing was this airbending sort of power because he was an airbender in everything except the ability but i just love that he's so obsessed with the monk who was able to fly because he disconnected from all of his earthly attachment attachments and he could just just fly at like as if he was an air bison 
and he only has one attachment left, and it's his wife. And then his wife literally blows her own head up. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, again, kids show, I wish they would have been able to hold on the frame a bit more. But that was nuts, the fact that they did that. That was crazy. Blows her, like, a thousand times more violent than than combustion man's death. Mm-hmm. Which blows her own head off, and then immediately is able to fly because that's his last earthly attachment. I think that's great. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and then we talked about it a bit before, and that one time we brought it up on the show, but I also like with um, Tenzin and Korra and their sort of pursuit of gathering more airbenders to revive the air nomad culture and we get that nice episode just focusing on Tenzin trying to deal with that and his old struggles with it um, and he's like using part of Boomy's um, military expertise of like oh here's how you can whip these soldiers up into shape um, and he puts that in and goes overboard with it I love how they just leaned in on that stuff mm-hmm. and then we get to see towards the end like Boomy's able to step up and help them work together as a team in order to save Kai and Janora when they get kidnapped. So I really like that part. I also love how earlier in the season we got to see Tenzin being very overzealous and trying to get people to just join, like uproot your life and come live with me in the Northern or Eastern air temple. I forget which one it was, but just come live with me and learn this new culture that you had no connection to previously. And that people were like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so we saw how even though airbending had come back, that didn't necessarily mean that the air nomad, the air nation was going to return. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting. I also like how Cora in this season, big step up from season two, not as aggravating. She was still doing like aggressive things. Like when that one basement dweller airbender and she's trying to con- convince him very forcefully to come with her. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that side of her still is intact, but we get to see more of her um, dealing with the fact that, okay, am I making the right decisions? Like in episode one, when the spirit vines and whatnot were sort of wreaking havoc on the city and she had 8% approval rating or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's grappling with, you know, how can I make these things right? How can I do the right thing? Um, in these situations that are getting, again, increasingly more complex and just difficult to process. Uh, and then when the airbenders come back, she initially on that bridge is talking with that dude um, and sort of talks him down instead of, I mean, I don't know if he's going <laughs> to, she goes up and knocks him out or anything. It'd be a crazy way to go about it. But it does show that she's able to approach situations now and use the softer side of herself mm-hmm. um, and talk things through uh, in order to make good outcomes occur so i liked how we had that bit um with the zaofu city the whole lin beifong backstory we get more of that and her rift with her sister which i Mm -hmm. thought was pretty interesting it was definitely tough seeing at end of the episodes her like crying after she gets chewed out by cora for being just very rotten and mean towards her family and whatnot Mm-hmm. like that was tough tough to watch but i did like that overall arc that they were going for there and once again the airbender invasion thing where zaheer and his team came up and attacked that uh that place i thought that was great i thought the subsequent fights they had where they were both going to exchange um 
exchange Korra over to the Zaheer people in order to get Tenzin and all the airbenders safe. Um, like again, that was a mature decision that we saw Korra wrestling with. Like talking with Zuko and talking with Ira about, okay, what should I do here? Um, and she ultimately decided to, in a way, like be willing enough to give herself up in order to save um, the airbenders, which was, I thought, a great, again, moment of character development. Now for the final, final fight. Zaheer poisons Korra, Oof. trying to get her into the Avatar state. To, I love that whole part. Right? Like it's that, so good. That whole, it's so intense and scary. It is, yes. That whole like torture scene is just brutal. Um, and seeing Korra trying to resist going into the Avatar state, like trying to hold out as long as she can. Because mm-hmm. um, she's like, okay, I'll die, but I don't want the Avatar cycle to die. Like That stuff was very gripping. And then the fight itself, like it was so reminiscent of Aang <clears throat> versus Ozai. Mm-hmm. Like them both flying around and they had the big like rock pillars and whatnot. Yeah. Um, which I noticed a lot with season three, like they definitely leaned a lot on familiar items in the Avatar world. Which I'm say, that desert, the oasis, Zuko coming back, the down to this fight being very similar. I'm okay with that. I say go for it. I'm okay with it as well because I mean they did do a lot of new things. I mean, saw the whole metal metal bending society, lava bending, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. they had a lot of new elements, but it also definitely felt. Um, very familiar and i think yeah, we also 100%. got some of the some of the best actual avatar team stuff like when they were on the um stakeout mm-hmm. and it's just them like chilling in the room trying to pass the time waiting for um that dude the truth sayer to go leave mm-hmm. for the meeting like i yeah. thought that was that was great so that stuff was brilliant and then the very very ending where Korra has won the fight, they get the what they believe to be most of the poison out. Um, she's injured. She's in a wheelchair, and she broken, dude. is broken down. Like, yeah, we see her just completely destroyed in a way it happened before. And I love the way that they contrasted this celebration, this big triumphant moment with Janora getting her tattoos with Korra being so broken down. And being told essentially, like, oh, the airbenders are going to be able to fill in for you. Because, and again, that's the way she feels. The way she hears it is because you can't do it anymore. So we don't need you. You have tied your whole like identity, everything around being the avatar. But now we don't even need you to be the avatar. We don't need you, Korra. Like, that's what she's feeling in that moment as Janora is getting the the tattoo and she looks so much like ang it was so beautiful to see that yeah and the music oh my god it's the whole scene is great off on that score jeremy zuckerman i believe it was so good like that whole scene was incredible my favorite scene of the whole series it was just at one moment you're smiling ear to ear and then the next you're like oh so hard i feel so sad so heartbroken so good i love this whole season start to finish I think it's so great. I think everybody gets good development. I think the story is really well written. I think the introduced characters are really well written. I think the little arcs that are in between all the arcs have good conclusions. I think this is just them hitting the perfect stride and creating more content that builds on top of Avatar without totally like dismantling it in any way. I think this is peak uh, Avatar writers writing new stuff. 
is season three of Legend of Korra. I 100% agree. As you should. <laughs> all right, you want to take us into season four? Balance. Yeah, season four is balance. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> it sets up so well. Like, there's a big time skip. It's been like three years. Yeah. Three or four years. And Korra is just still damaged. Like, it's been this long and she's still hurt and, and in pain and just can't be the avatar still. Uh, we have Kubira is introduced and she was she was introduced in, at the, the very last episode of season three. Very, very brief. Very, very briefly. Yeah. She's the person who just arrests Zaheer. Like, that's her entire thing. And then she's the main villain for season four. She is not my favorite villain. I don't know. It's not the best. I will say about the villains of Korra, I'm glad none of them are firebenders because, you know, been there, done that. I'm glad that yeah. they messed around with waterbenders, airbenders, earthbenders. But I don't know. I just feel like she was not my main focus for most of the season. Kuvira was definitely more of a background element in the season to me. It was more about me watching Korra's just development and her trying to become the Avatar again so that she could deal with Kuvira as opposed to Kuvira being a bad guy and Korra's dealing with her. Like, I feel like Kuvira was just a background thing i also just was just annoyed by her i guess i think i feel like it's hard to watch them lean just back into fascism once again because they just been there done that and they did it perfectly and i mean they're still doing it really well in season four of Korra. it's just been there done that Kuvira is not the greatest um right i think it is interesting at least that i mean we saw sort of the end of that in the avatar last airbender world we saw what became of that rise of the tyrant and of fascism here we see okay how does that come about how does that start yeah and it was in that true. power vacuum and she's right proclaiming herself the great uniter bringing back all these disparate states that are getting attacked by barbarians and whatnot and so i like that they do touch on that how part fascism where, starts yes where it did start it is as a stabilizing force and then it becomes far too overbearing and um Rigid. dominating and therefore earthy also an issue so i do like that they set that up and it's i also shot, like yeah. that kuvira isn't an enemy that is trying to like take down the avatar specifically like mm-hmm. she, all the previous ones were literally trying to destroy avatars for good um and therefore we're a big threat to Korra and who she is but this one she's just doing her own thing like her goals are completely disconnected to the avatar mm-hmm. and so i like that um that gives room for Korra to have to again find herself again find um the confidence in herself to be the avatar once again um and doing it against a villain that doesn't necessarily even want to like take her down or anything she has to stand up against um this other force that most other people would also have to deal with but uniquely she's the avatar she in theory should be the most capable of taking on this force and confronting it Um, Mm -hmm. and at the moment she's not able to and so i like her having to wrestle with that and we see multiple times where she talks about oh this happened because of me because i wasn't there kavira was able to 
seize power in this way. Yeah. Um, and then we even see in that her like one on one battle with Kavira, she's not able to stop it when she's given a chance. Um, mm -hmm. So I do really like the approach they took with this this villain and how she's has a different dynamic to Korra than the rest of the villains did. Yeah, it's always interesting to see something new. It's just not my favorite. I don't know. I just not I was not there very much. It's just season three was so good that they could have they could have I I'm glad that they gave us season four so we could see the follow through with season three. Because that's important to see, but then the stuff after seeing the follow through didn't stand as tall as season three did. And so it's like it's like landing a very complicated like like gymnastics move and then landing it and you see that follow through. And then just taking like a little tech deck and doing a flip. And it's like, well, <laughs> nobody really cares about the tech deck doing a flip when you just landed your own really special, cool move. Right. Yeah. Definitely had a tough act to follow. But I think for the most part, again, it's leagues better than season two. Oh, certainly. Um, and I do really like we get the most meaty development for Korra, her having to go through that whole PTSD certainly, and recovering. Certainly. And so I like that that brings her through many major figures in her life. Like mm -hmm. she, we see Katara again, and she has that initial physical rebuild, rehabilitation. Then we get to see Toph uh, back in action with more of the physical rehabilitation, but then also her sort of reframing her relationship to the previous villains, um, where Toph is like, yeah, they all had somewhat of a point, but they took it too far because they were out of balance. You have to strike a balance. Hey, that's the name of the book for balance. <laughs> Crazy. Um, so that's why they were touching on that, which again, I like making her have to think more about, okay, the things that I've gone through and how can I change and grow from that and be more balanced from it. Mm -hmm. um, and then also getting the poison removed, which was a little weird. She just had extra poison leftover and they said oh uh, my top was like oh my daughters are not that great of metal benders that was very weird like a weird explanation to have for that um, i mean, and they finally, just wanted, I mean it does make sense like the best metal bender is always going to be tough and there's always going to be little traces that they're missing that are still inside of her and so to get it as much of it out as possible the only person who can get the little bits that are left in her is, is tough so i guess it makes sense to me I suppose. But I do like that it was actually her who did it. It was Korra who ended up getting it out. Um, but yeah, Toph was the only one able to detect the traces of it in there. Yeah, which, I agree. Yeah, that just fell flat for me. But then finally, the final step in her recovery is confronting Zaheer. Which is great. Final Benemental rehabilitation where she's able to enter the spirit world again and let go of the fear she had and the stress and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, from Zaheer so that was also really interesting seeing him come back into the fold um, which I and, love I love seeing the, like the best villains come back mm -hmm. and like have an effect I love that the follow through is fantastic in the season from season three it's great yeah and I love that again he's a principled man he's told Kavira has risen power and he's like okay I'm gonna help you avatar take down this new tyrant that has sprung up mm -hmm. so I love the consistency there um, and with the other things that were going on this season, we have Mako 
being a bodyguard for the prince who was to become the new king of the Earth Kingdom. They really just had nothing for Mako anymore, man. They yeah, really no, put they really ran out. On bodyguard duty, that was kind of dumb. Um, Balin, as a Kavira soldier, uh, it was kind of... Had of an arc? Yeah, like he goes. He, he it's good to see like the process. Him and Opal, of, at least that was like an arc with him. Yeah, that was interesting. Thinking he's doing good things because he isn't seeing the full extent. Um, mm-hmm. And then Opal, of course, being very upset because her her family, Zafu and whatnot, they're getting threatened uh, by Kabir's expansion. So that was super interesting as well. At least just that dynamic. And of course, he does end up once he finds out the truth. Of what Kavir is doing, runs away with Varric. In that particular part, the Varric and Julie plotline, mm-hmm. where he grows a conscience and is like, oh, us creating a spirit nuke is not mm-hmm. the best thing. Let's not yeah. do that. And then when they get captured and found out for trying to sabotage it or run away, I forget whichever it was, Julie appears to betray him and say like oh you've never appreciated me i'm gonna help these people out kavira i love what you're doing you are actually the best mind out there in the world not varic mm-hmm. and then how that comes back later <clears throat> on in the season uh, when we find out of course that she is actually just trying to sabotage kavira's efforts she because she's in love with varic indeed and we see varic <laughs> with the whole do the thing <laughs> to Berlin, and he doesn't know what he's talking about julie would have known what the thing was he is missing julie finally realizes how much he has been taking her for granted how much he does care about her that whole thing is great i really love seeing that and i love how it's such a because he was the big comic relief of season two but he was also like a twisted villain just being a mustache twirling capitalist trying to profiteer off the war yeah but then but they bring him around yeah he comes back around so i love how how that happens with in the whole marriage proposal and whatnot. Uh, great mm-hmm. stuff. And the wedding at the end. I mean, that's the thing that caps it off. It's the Beifong arc. I don't know. It seemed the whole like tough elements and her family and the strife there that was lingering. I just had too many questions about why Toph would all of a sudden go into a swamp for decades and watch over her family and whatnot instead of just being there with her family. That just didn't make any sense to me and then we didn't also see much i guess lynn was mad about not knowing her father at any point and they sort of go at each other a bit during that beifong arc part and then they kind of resolved it but then does toff just leave again she's just leaving again forever to go back in the swamp and not interact with her her kids or her kids kids i guess I that so. seemed weird oh but Definitely, definitely strange. I mean, it just feels like there's something missing there. Like they're missing, we're missing the story that is what happens to Team Avatar between Airbender, Last Airbender, and Legend of Korra. Like we're missing that whole middle part. And I'm sure they came up with something to explain it, but I think they just didn't give us enough of that explanation to make it make sense. Like they're missing little bits of information that they just didn't give us or Mm -hmm. didn't come up with. I have no idea. Right. And then, okay, so some other things. So the final battle, which is stretched out across multiple episodes, I actually did 
for most of those episodes, you really enjoy it. Like the big massive mecha thing was, I was like, okay, it's kind of weird. But once you buy yeah. into that and you see it come into the city, the ultimate kaiju, right? For the real. robot kaiju, um, come into the city and the team. Sorry, act- can you say Yo. come one more time? <laughs> come You're down, saying man. it was such vigor. Come into the city. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then we can, what am I even saying? I don't know. You got me off track again, Dylan. <laughs> Stay focused. We're so close to the finish line. So let's get there. Um, come into the city and they, <laughs> and we see the whole team avatar plus all the other mofos trying to take this thing down and they can't. Like everything they're throwing at it, every plan they're coming up with, they're failing and losing. And you see Kavira try to kill her husband because, or I guess fiance. Because um, she truly cares about repairing the empire and being the one ruler over all of it instead of mm. being with him. So that was great. And then we also get Asami's father comes back around, Mr. Santo. We get an actual arc for Asami. It was two episodes. <laughs> it was two episodes long. Revolving around forgiving her father. Four but seasons in, she gets something. Yeah, at least it is something. And so we see him come up with the idea to use like the plasma cutters to get in there, and they have these ornithopter ripoffs, um, mecha thingies mm-hmm. that they can use to fly up to it. And so I thought that was pretty effective as well. Her father sacrificing himself, yeah, sure, um, for the cause. I thought that was cool. Also, Mako. He was going to do, like, they were setting that up of, oh, is he going to do it? Is he going to get killed? He brings out the lightning to take down the, I forget what the logistics were of it. I saw that was pretty dangerous to, you don't know how big that thing's going to explode. He's like, yeah, I'm going to just destroy it. I'm going to just zap it until it goes boom. He should have died. I think he should have sacrificed himself. He, but, he wasn't doing anything else at the time. And that's what I'm saying. My man, he could have done it. He could have gone out of here. But then... The very, very end, we have Korra versus Kubira times two, uh, mm. where Korra wins. Then we have the whole spirit nuke situation. Kubira finds the cannon that was dropped off. It's connected to spirit vines. She powers it up, but then it gets too juiced up, can't stop it. And then Korra does something, and then it rips open the spirit portal. I was like, okay weird but then again i do like how when she's talking with uh kavir afterwards we see more of that growth like she's able to mm-hmm. understand a bit of what kavira's personal issues like she was doing sort of a a therapy session there but she was talking about i understand what it was yeah. like to be afraid and to lash out for that reason and try to just take control and always be the one in charge taking charge so i like that Mm-hmm. And then the very, very final thing. We get the wrap-up, we get the wedding, we get the final moment with Koran Mako, Koran Tenzin, where they talk about, oh, it feels like this is just the beginning. I'm just coming into my own as the Avatar now. And then we have Korra and Asami. And then they say, let's go on vacation. And then they walk into the spirit portal, holding hands. And then they turn to face each other. And then the camera pans up. And that is the end. Of Legend of Korra. We don't get so, a kiss from them, right? No. Really sucks, bro. Come on. Throw it in there. 
Why, why would they? Why would they just be so soft and weak about it? Stupid Nickelodeon and their "We want to appeal to everybody's shit." <laughs> Fucking right. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was what twenty fourteen or something on Nickelodeon. Um, so they couldn't go all the way with it. But they're I gonna think, be gay. Make them gay. Like, that's really what I'm saying. Go for and it, and also make them actually talk to each other for about romantic two things. of the seasons of a four season show they just don't interact at all in the first two seasons and they yeah. hardly do it's definitely a lot more present in three and four and i like the fact that they did that that they actually had some form of interaction or a connection and i would have liked if they leaned more into this being like a friendship because cora doesn't really have a best friend like with all this stuff going on she doesn't really have a friend that she can lean on or one that's her own age so i would have loved if they went more with Cora and asami are becoming best friends they are now best friends at this point instead of randomly and again it's a nickelodeon show so how much setup could they do but i don't know it feels like a thing they just tagged on instead of something that was meaningfully been... being built up to or it could have been really meaningfully built up to just a really sexual relationship where they're just getting real hot and heavy with it. Or that. I mean, go go for it. Just make it something that's You're actually You're going to make the characters explicit. gay. Make them gay. You know, go that, for it. Just do it. Go all in. Yeah. To me, it felt like this would be the equivalent of Aang and Toph ending up together at the end of The Last Airbender. But not like ending up ending up, just like holding hands and then it ends. Yeah, but there is obviously the massive implication of like, oh, this is a romantic inkling or whatever. So it would be like that, where they're holding hands and you could, if you blink and miss it, you could be like, oh, they're just being friends, going on vacation. But then you're like, wait a minute, is there a romantic undercurrent there? Friends it just feels on like a vacation. Weird, a weird You want to go on do. vacation, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> no. You're going to scream drainage at me. <laughs> We're in like Hawaii somewhere, and you're like, man, this, this sunset's really nice, dude. And I'm like, drainage. <laughs> Good lord. Okay, so I believe that is it for season four. Any other last minute things you wanted to throw out there about it? Nah, it's Legend of Korra. It's good, not great. Uh, season three is awesome. So if you're gonna do anything, watch the first three seasons and then stop. Like if if you like are not committed to doing anything. Watch the first two so you get the characters, and, and then watch the third season because it's amazing. Like if, no, definitely if not, follow through and watch the I, fourth one. You just said I guess the follow through of how it finishes season three. Yeah, it's yeah. Because, yeah, ending on season three, it's, it doesn't give you that full resolution because Corey's I in suppose a so, but very bad place. God, the third season is just, it's on par almost. Like, almost completely. It's like an inch from being on par with the original Last Airbender series, which is an amazing thing for a sequel to do when Avatar I don't know if is I'd, so amazing. If I could go that far, but it definitely was the closest. I it will was go that far. spitting range. Um, so, yeah, our reflections on Legend of Korra. Rank the seasons. We know season three is your number one. Yeah, but it, go, it, the goes, it goes Reggie, Jay-Z, it goes. It goes season three is number one. Season one is number two, season four is number three, season two is number four. So one, three, one, two, three, one, four, two, three, one, four, two, three, one, what about four, you? two. Can the I guess exact... what yours are? 
Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) What would you have guessed? I would have guessed that you would have swapped four and one. I think you would have liked four more than one, but I guess I was wrong. I feel like you would have liked the follow through a lot with with how they followed through with season three. And I think you would have really liked Kubira more than I did. And I think you would have really liked the idea of fascism being built up. And I think you really, really liked the idea of giving more characters more arcs. And I just feel like there were a lot of more pitfalls in season one for you to pay attention to than I would, because I just love yeah. the character building and the world building of season one so much. But yeah. I guess I was wrong. I guess it's exact. <laughs> the exact same ranking as you gave it. I maybe because it's been a few months now since I've seen season one. It's been mm-hmm. like a week since I've seen season four. Um, True. So I may be being more charitable to season one. But I do think like there's just something about it, a quality to it that just makes it so stand out uh, to me compared to season four as good as it is in following through with some of those character items. Um, but we talked about some of the fallbacks of both of them, but I can appreciate yeah. more of what season one tried to do because it seemed to be more of breaking new ground and trying out something very new and inventive. And for the most part, I mean, it stuck a lot um, of the landings it was going for, um, which is very commendable. So yeah, for me, three by far was very 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 good season one then season four and then season two which is very 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 far away from the rest um also for the record lily wanted to point out that season four is her favorite she Uh, likes the whole theme of dealing with imperialism coming back again and whatnot even though it wasn't as well executed as they initially promised in the first few episodes of that season it's just an odd choice because just season three is just obviously the best one it's just (laughs) so good it's just so good just from start to finish it is amazing that is all the time we have if you'd like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week you can email us at theboxoffishow at gmail.com that is theboxoffishow at gmail.com our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. Be sure to tune in next week, Tuesdays from 4 to 5. I'm Dylan Johnson. That is not true. Don't You can't tune in from 4 to 5. It's not on Tuesdays. He's very tired. He's very confused. We'll see you next week. The episode will be uploaded. You can click it anytime. Trainage! Come! <laughs> Hmm. <laughs>